0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, it is the 20th of the 10th. I must apologise for us not being with you on Sunday. Regular listeners will know that I am waiting and waiting and waiting for the place I am living to be hooked up to internet and have been trying to do all of these things off a phone. I am told that situation will soon end and I can finally re-enter the digital age, but until then we are unfortunately at the mercy of these technologies, which seem to randomly switch off whenever I need them.
1: Amused at your naivety that you think that this is a random thing and not a deliberately coordinated attack by the dark forces operating within our pseudo democracy to keep the people from hearing the truth.
0: I mean they might want to stop the people from hearing the truth, but what the hell does that relate to us?
1: Well you know, Gary, when they throw you throw a net out to trawl for the fishes, sometimes you catch the fishes and you sometimes you catch the crabs. But you can't you can't really distinguish one from the other. That's probably what's happening here.
0: I think we've spent too much time talking about epistemology and uh the fluid nature of the truth, to in any way refer to ourselves as providing the truth.
1: Well, no, are not providing it, but we're all engaged in a process of seeking it. We're all gathered together, out there hunting away for the truth, as it runs ever faster away from us.
0: There is a new bill being put forward by Sinn Féin Senator, Paul Gavin. He is introducing a new bill to, uh, It's it's one of the... Bill's aiming to give a space around anywhere abortions are done.
1: Yeah, safe, sp- safe, safe access space for the reason, yeah.
0: He wants a 100-meter buffer zone around every premises that provides pregnancy terminations. That is, is the way the time's are. Yeah. The headline is anti-abortion protesters could face jail under new laws. What it says in the first line is anti-abortion protesters who harass women outside hospitals and clinics could be fined or jailed under a proposed new law. Now, I think that headline might be, Michael, what we call a little bit leading there. Mm. Because it's not that anti-abortion protesters could face jail under new laws. It's that someone who harasses or assaults someone could be jailed under a proposed new law, at least according to the first line of it.
1: Unless the new law is going to make it its business to define assault or harassment in such a way that the simple silent presence of somebody would be construed as being that.
0: Now the guards have, have come out already. Drew Harris has said that existing legislation is sufficient in instances where someone crosses the line from protest to harassment or assault. But I wanted to just bring up two things about this bill, Michael. Two things the Times says about it anyway. Go on. And one is this, because there's already... Lisa Chambers was already talking about a bill on this. So now maybe we'll have dueling bills. And I wasn't able to find a full copy of the bill when I sat down. So we might come back to this, but I just, I just thought you'd like these two parts. Under the legislation, it would be illegal to seek to influence a person's decision to access abortion services or hold signs within the 100 meter exclusion zones. I cannot remember a bill in active memory that has contained language about seeking to influence a person's decision about anything being illegal within certain areas. But that's that's the first point of it. Now, here's the point. I think that you love The Times also says, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, which supports Aha! the introduction ah, which you, supports you the introduction there. of safe access zones said the right to protest can be limited in exceptional circumstances to protect the rights of others, adding that demonstrators could simply make their arguments elsewhere.
1: How can you go around pretending to be a body whose purpose is the defence of civil liberties and then come out with the kind of shite like that, which is to say, oh well, we can stop you protesting. We can, and protesting might simply mean standing with a small sign silently on the pavement. But no, we're not going to let you do that. Because, you know what? You can go and make your argument elsewhere. I mean, how is, how is that not the very definition of some kind of sort of pseudo totalitarian? to the totalitarian political mindset. When, that's a civil liberties organization in extreme circumstances because you're in, you are infringing the rights of others. How are they, are they stopping people walking into the hospital? Are they throwing things at them? Are they, are they standing there with snipers? Are they, what the fuck? This is a civil liberties organization. Are they, they are shameless. They are absolutely shameless.
0: I just want to make sure that you 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 get the full extent of what they're saying here, though. Because this is in an article about this particular bill. Presumably, the Times asked them about that bill. And let's strip out the abortion thing there. Let's just talk about the principle behind that bill. Yeah, yeah. Under the legislation, it will be illegal to seek to influence a person's decision within the 100 metre exclusion zones. The principle here is that the state can put in place a law that designates an area and says you cannot say anything which could be construed as influencing a person's opinion on something within that area. And the ICCL's response was, well, you can simply do it somewhere else.
1: You can do it somewhere else.
0: It's not a big deal.
1: We're not infringing on your your, your liberties here or your civil rights. No, you can do it somewhere else. You can do it on Twitter. You could do it on Facebook. Christ almighty. Do they still get money from the, from the taxpayer?
0: Well, I think the ICCL say that they don't get money from the taxpayer. But if I remember correctly, the ICCL, when I asked them about it, when I went through their accounts, actually, because they didn't respond when I asked them, uh, do accept money from entities which are entirely state funded. So do we consider that state funding? I would. I think pretty clearly it is state funding. It's the Receiving massive amounts of taxpayers' money, and they're taking money from the EU, which is again a governmental source, but they're saying, well, we don't accept any government funding. You say, it kind of looks like you are, though.
1: You can go and do it somewhere else.
0: Here's the thing, Michael, because it's presented as, well, this is a, 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 this is going to be a measure, you know, to protect women, vulnerable women, against anti-choice protesters and I have a feeling lots of people aren't gonna stop to go so we it's not unconstitutional to give the government the right to control political discourse within designated areas and make it illegal for you to make points ...in favour of a particular idea within that area. We think that's perfectly fine... ...and in line with constitutional and human right requirements. So it's it's, it's phrased in exactly the way it needs to be... ...to actually be treated seriously. And the ICCL already seem to be treating it seriously. Now maybe the Times didn't ask them particularly about the bill... ...but it's phrased as if they did. And to be honest... I find it utterly unsurprising that the ICCL would say that about the bill. They're already
1: on record as supporting this anyway.
0: Yeah, no, but I, I think this one is different because of the idea that you can exclude speech from a designated area. Don't care, it's, all, it's all speech. Michael, I think there's a difference between saying no protesters can go here. You can point at other things like the requirements for registration before protest or certain uh private areas and you can say there's a precedent i don't think it's a solid argument but you can make it but where is there a precedent for the passing of a law which explicitly restricts arguments in support of one political or ideological position within a an area to be determined by the government
1: i think it's bizarre bizarre notion No. I don't find it a bizarre notion that there are members of the Dole that would want to pass such a law, but I find it a bizarre, farcical, laughable and shameful notion that a group which is supposed to be defending civil liberties would actually be in favour of such a law.
0: I don't know, some might say that's a bit of an issue for a civil liberties body, but uh, no one respectable anyway.
1: No, no, God, no, not respectable. Not respectable
0: at all. So, the government has announced some changes to the planned reopening structure. They seem to have developed a newfound interest in the idea of antigen testing, which they have had at random points throughout the last two years, but have never gone anywhere with it. And Michael, I think, wants to talk about some of the regulations for nightclubs.
1: Um <laughs> well, I don't, I, I'm not... Actually, I'm not particularly bothered about the nightclubs. Nightclubs are a young man's game, Gary. I've long since abandoned my interest in attending nightclubs. I do think that there is, you know when, as it is and has been for some time, you go into a coffee shop and when you walk to your table, you have to wear a mask. Mm. When you're sitting at your table, you you can take the mask off. And you can sit there and you can you can discuss and drink your coffee and eat your cake and whatever. But then you have to go to the bathroom, put the mask on again and all that. And at times, particularly when you're in a coffee shop, which is like 15 foot square, it all feels a little bit silly. Or if you're even in a big place, which is completely empty and you're not passing anybody by, it all feels a little bit performative. That seems to have been brought to its highest level now with the rules regarding nightclubs. The first thing is that nightclubs are going to come back, but with social distancing. Now, you're closer to the young people than I am, at least chronologically, Gary. But my memory of what the purpose of a nightclub was, was to ultimately destroy social distancing. And that's why we include the uh, consummation, the consuming of large amounts or moderate amounts, indeed, of alcohol in order to disinhibit the people. So they won't be socially distant, so they will rub up against each other in a friendly kind of a way.
0: I mean, they, young people may not always achieve it, but I assume it is generally the primary motivation.
1: Well, certainly around half past one uh, uh, of a Saturday night in coppers, I think that the motivations have, to be there have become fairly singular. But maybe you can, you, you can guide me through these. If I'm dancing, I don't have to wear a mask. Is that correct?
0: That appears to be the regulation. If you are dancing, you are... Yeah, so it was announced, I think, the general tone was that restrictions would have to continue in nightclubs, including mask wearing and social distancing and all of that things. And then they said, of course, unless you're dancing or drinking or something like that.
1: So if you weren't sitting at your table, assuming it's one of those places that had tables, but say you're standing up, you're standing up, not drinking, not at your table, but not dancing, then you would have to wear your mask. However, if you were standing up and dancing, then you wouldn't have to wear your mask.
0: I wonder would they accept a gentle swag?
1: I said that's the thing? I mean, different people, very different styles of dancing, different types of music, very different types of, st- of dancing. When in the many, many years ago in the far far away long time, that I was a person attending dance halls, the way we used to dance was you basically you bolted your knees together, moved your arms around. To the noises that whatever, whether it was Depeche Mode or Ultravox was making at the time. And that was dancing. Other places, there were lots of jumping up and down. Now, I haven't heard or noticed anybody talking about singing. Because one of the things that goes on at nightclubs, Gary, particularly towards the end of the night. And there's a tune on. Of course, I don't know. Do they have? uh, If it's techno, if it's a pure techno night, there won't be any lyrics there won't be any singing so it'll just be the people standing there in their lovely atomistic drogues dancing away to the beat but if it's kind of nightclub where they actually play tunes with lyrics there is a tendency for people to sing along now i know singing is very bad so if you're standing up and you're singing you'd have to be doing that with a mask on if you're going to be allowed to be but if you're dancing you've no mask on is there going to be a regulation that you can dance without a mask, but you can't dance and sing?
0: The difficulty here is that this is going to be the only place you can dance and sing without a mask. Because right. the government has also confirmed that for indoor live music, drama, any live entertainment, sporting events, audience will have to be fully seated. Oh, okay. So you can't dance at live music. You can't
1: dance? Well, if you if you can't dance, you're no friend of mine.
0: Here's Here is... A quote from... <laughs> you wouldn't just... I, I tried very hard to just ignore that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, Here is laughter.
1: You get not uh, Sorry, go on.
0: Here is the exact quote from Micheal Martin. And I actually quite like it because you can nearly feel how much the man has given up. He said that there is going to be uh, anomalies in... Um, the regulations for pubs and nightclubs and live venues. And this is his quote. Inevitably, some people will say, hang on a second. How come you can have dancing in a nightclub, but you can't have dancing at a live venue, for example? And I think, first of all, we have to accept that that is an anomaly. Right. What traditionally happens at a nightclub will be able to happen at the nightclub. Oh. So there's a little bit of, some may say this doesn't make sense, but to them I say, yes.
1: So what happens normally in a nightclub can happen in a nightclub. Now, once upon a time, listeners will know from reading books by Edna O'Brien and the others, if they still read such things, that there was a time when you would have a dance and they uh, a member of the clergy or a, a local nun, if it was a school dance, would go around and check using a newspaper or perhaps in the United States, I believe, a telephone directory because they had telephones, that there was enough room between the two dancing people. Uh, to the, the, as they used to say there was room for the Holy Spirit now if, if if Gary what was used to happen in nightclubs is going to be able to happen in nightclubs well you, there's going to be phys- that surely involves physical contact I, mean, I, I can't believe that we've got to the point where it is actually possible to half seriously ask the question will the owners of nightclubs be expected to police whether or not patrons will be shifting. If some young fella throws the gob, obviously with explicit consent sought and given.
0: Active and uh, enthusiastic.
1: Absolutely, because I've just been watching South Park and it's very clear. Active, explicit consent given. If said young fella throws, th- throws the gob on this young one, will there be people there to intervene and say No. No, young fella, you cannot do that. That's an outside club activity. Or would that kind of thing be allowed to go ahead? By the way, as for the dancing in concerts, I completely approve of that. I was never a big attender of concerts and I much preferred the idea of sitting in my seat and watching them play their music and not have to get up and pretend to want to dance, which all my other friends would want to do. Oh God, let's go and dance up on the stage. And they, oh, do we have to? So I I'm 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 on I'm on board with that, but this is just getting. Surely it would not. Isn't that the case, Gary? That and if we want to be really number one health safety guru guys here, the single most likely spot to be the famous, the site of the famous you know super spreader is a nightclub. Remember the the case very early on. In Seoul, in South Korea, where you you had a series of, of uh, wasn't it, gay bars and nightclubs? And just went, boom straight through them.
0: I think from what we picked up just over the course of this, uh, areas that are likely to, you know, conducive to super spreader events, I would basically summarize it as nursing homes, hospitals, nightclubs, the the question you were asking there, Michael, about whether or not the clubs will have to police someone trying to uh, vigorously uh, engage with another person. I think the more important question is, maybe that's not allowed. But if they're both technically dancing, does that mean it's legal?
1: Well, dance has been called the vertical expression of horizontal
0: desire. I The thing I really like here is the Vinter's Association are saying this is devastating to us. This makes no sense. What is the sense that you can go into a nightclub and you can dance and you can do all these things, but you cannot go to the bar to order a drink in a pub? Martin Martin had some comments on that as well, Michael.
1: Entity, go on, share, share.
0: It took a while for pubs and restaurants to get used to the rules, and I remember hearing over the summer if hotel dining rooms can open, Why can't I open? That goes on all the time. So,
1: is what Mioz, is he what he's effectively saying? Listen, we actually don't have any answers to the questions that you're asking. But we've come to our peace with that. We don't worry about that anymore. And we would invite you, the press and the public, to join us in that. And just accept it. Just make your peace with it. There is no logic or coherence.
0: What they're saying is that the department is going to urgently work with the sector in order order to devise regulations for the sector that take into account the complexities of the sector. The strong undertone to that is we needed to open them, and so we're going to open them, and it seemed kind of ridiculous to open them and not allow dancing. So we were kind of forced to allow dancing.
1: Now, they're going to be opened because they're going to be opened with passports,
0: yes? It looks like passports. The government is now talking about antigen testing, so maybe they'll do something with antigen testing as well if you want entry. It's difficult to know, Michael. But I will. I believe the government can pull it off, Michael. Because I, I will believe anything of a government that managed to vaccinate over 100% of Ireland's elderly.
1: Yeah, they found elderly that we didn't know we had.
0: Yeah, this is something I've been following along for a while. And I remember we were talking about it when the the HSE had their little health worker issue. And we yes. were saying that there, there's, there are more people vaccinated as healthcare workers than there are healthcare workers in the country. Which was a good trick. Yeah, it was impressive. I realized shortly after that that there are more people vaccinated in the over-60 age demographic than there are in the country. At least according to the census. And there are substantially more people. So... I mean you had immigration, people obviously get older, but then people die, so that drives the number down. Yes. But we have yeah, we we've administered about over two million vaccines to people over sixty in Ireland. Uh so you have in that, you know, single dose, dose one, dose two. Mostly in the elderly in the over sixties it was it was a two dose system. They didn't use much of the single dose at all. But there are estimated to be Less than 900,000 people over, or over 60 in this country, and some of the estimates go down to about 700,000. Two doses at 900,000, that's 1.8 million. Where did the other 200,000 vaccines go? And that's, the, by the way, those are not the census figures. Those are the estimates on the assumption that since the census in 2016, the population has increased. Uh, but I really just bring it up to make the point that we actually have relatively little idea Of how many people we've vaccinated, because we don't really have a very solid idea of Ireland's population. Like, we're in the right ballpark. We're not going to be off massively. But something to keep in mind when we're talking about there are this many unvaccinated and there are this many uh, vaccinated. We don't really know how many people are in the country. We never really have. It was never really an issue. There's a fair few. I, I, I think we can be confident in saying that.
1: There's a fair few people in the country, and there's more than there used to be. And isn't that all you really need to know? I mean, it's all the pension system needs to know. That's true. You mentioned antigen testing there, Gary. Um, One of the things that has been a bit of a puzzlement for a lot of people looking at Ireland is the fact that we are up there around the tippy top of Europe and indeed the developed world when it comes, which means the world, actually, when it comes to vaccinations. When it comes to the numbers of uh, the vulnerable vaccinated, we're supposed to be up there near near a hundred percent of the the category considered vulnerable. Over what is it, ninety two to ninety five percent? Now I know we're talking figures now. Just having said that, the figures are doubtful. But hey ho, somewhere between ninety two to ninety five percent of adults.
0: There, hi. You should work on the assumption that anyone who wanted to get vaccinated has gotten vaccinated. And those who haven't gotten vaccinated either have uh, chosen not to get vaccinated and don't want to, have chosen not to get vaccinated because you know, they have some reason not to, maybe an underlying medical condition or a fear of needles, which is actually surprisingly common, or they haven't gotten vaccinated because they just haven't bothered, because they just don't really see the need.
1: Yeah, and presumably in there could be quite a, <clears throat> a few of those people may have even had COVID.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would, you would suspect that this is a... The people who are not vaccinated will, on average, tend to be younger because they're less of an immediate threat and are possibly more likely to take certain risks with their health, like socialising, that older people wouldn't, and therefore more likely to have actually already had COVID. But we don't really have very good data on that, and the HSE is not really going to start producing that sort of data anytime soon. So we're looking at the numbers,
1: and we're getting very aerated again, Gary, about the numbers of people who are testing positive. The number of cases were back up to a 10-month high. Again, up at the, the top end in the European scale of, the, of new cases, we're trending. All the trends are looking bad, having looked pretty decent there under a month ago. And then we look at a country, say, like uh, Denmark. And Denmark is quite a bit ahead of us on the opening up c- c- uh, scenario. it uh, pretty well completely opened up. It was behind us on the total percentage of the population, that was vaccinated, and yes, doesn't seem to be having the same kind of surge problem, if you want to call it, that's the word that's been going around, with vaccines, uh, with, uh, with new cases. And people, not just Denmark, Denmark is the one that's come up, because Denmark is a similar sort of a, same latitude as us, and a similar size of a population, and that kind of thing. And people have been wondering why this might be the case. And one of the things that people have been saying is that maybe there's an issue around testing, you know? that maybe that an aggressive widespread testing regime could have been useful. Now, as far as I know, we've been talking about having a widespread testing regime for most of the pandemic.
0: Well, that's just, I mean, that's just the government. The government has been saying they were going to look into this. They've been getting reports done. We had a situation where NEFIT was saying they didn't see any value in antigen testing at the same time as uh, some of the other high-ranking medical officials uh, involved in the civil service were saying, no, absolutely, this is something we should do. And it just seemed to go to an impasse, or it seemed to go to an impasse. But interestingly enough, we seem to now finally be moving in that direction. In fact, Michael, according to The Times, the HSE has had plans in place for several months for the wider use of antigen testing. Plans, Gary, plans. At what point
1: do plans decide to become a reality? And it's not by, we're not also, by the way, just talking about an expansive case of antigen testing. But I was looking at the the data, right? And if I'm reading it correctly, and it's always possible that I'm not because I'm not great at these things, laboratory specimen testing figures, total tests completed. This was as of the 10th of the 19th to 2021, right? Total test completed in Ireland 7,842,753. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that there's a we can we can draw a causal, you know, a direct correlation between one system working and one another. But it's worth pointing out. Now I tried, but I uh, haven't been able to get up-to-date figures. But here's a figure, Gary, which is from the 29th of April. Okay? We're now in October, well into October. For Denmark. Right now, the population of Denmark is bigger than Ireland's. We have a little bit over five million there around five million eight hundred thousand. We had uh, tests now on our on the uh, the hub, it just says tests, which I assume means pcr tests because they haven't been doing any other kind of testing right and keeping in mind that Denmark has actually continued to ramp up its testing ability and particularly its anti- rapid antigen testing as it's opened up on the twenty ninth of April. The Danes had carried out 27,284,633 PCR tests, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 27 million, 7 million. And in addition, 9,913,606 antigen tests had been carried out. So a total, therefore, of around 37 million tests. That carries what I call a testing system.
0: Do you find our lack of system testing?
1: Well, you know, comparisons are invidious and we shouldn't be always looking to other people, but I can't see why, if the Danes can do that, and again, I reiterate, this was on the 29th of April, so May, June, July, August, September, and most of October gone, that they had done 37 million tests, 29 million PCR tests and nine, and basically 10 million antigen tests we've done a total of 7 million tests. And it is possible, Gary. It is possible, amongst other things, that this is one of the reasons why the Danes have been made but to manage uh, the problem in a way which has, so far, escaped us. We have been talk. You say there have been plans. There have been plans and there have been plans. And there are discussions. There's There are questions going back in the doll back to March and before, about when they were going to roll out proper testing piece, and combined PCR and antigen testing. When they were, if anybody wants to do it, I'll send you the, the link. Uh, there's an interesting, it's an interesting it's site, the WHO site, and it's the COVID-19 Health System Response Monitor, and it gives the policy responses for Denmark. I think it's, it's worth reading just for, uh, as a comparison. I don't understand what is going... I un- I know that there are prominent members of NEPHIS who had severe problems, doubts, concerns about the use of antigen testing. However, if you read a lot of those concerns, again, you seem to be encountering... One of the principal concerns is the same concern they have had about virtually everything else, Gary, which is, oh... People will use them and they'll use them wrong and they will get this ridiculous false sense of security and basically it's the same thing. It's like, oh, it's about hand sanitation or incorrect mask wearing. People will just get too comfortable and too confident and they'll run out of the streets, stripped naked, and lick each other. They really have a low opinion of the Irish people and especially considering, I would say, their success in inculcating a really, really strong and possibly even disproportionate sense of anxiety into the boy, into the broad population about the virus and about the pandemic, I, the danger that people are going to suddenly just start behaving in this wildly incorrect, and reckless fashion because they have access to testing—I don't see that there's any basis. In our experience of this pandemic, that, that, that would be true.
0: Can we just go ahead and do this? You'd be pleased to know, Michael, that the HSE is now, at the behest of Miho Martin, going to do it. They are going to do antigen testing. Do you want me to explain to you how they'll fuck it up, or do you want to just guess? No, no, go on. What's going to happen is, if you have someone who is a confirmed COVID case, they're going to have close contacts, Michael. yes. Yeah. Those people are not required to go for PCR testing under current health protocols. So what the HSE is going to do is it's going to deliver 10,000 boxes of antigen tests, each with five tests per box, or test kits per box, to vaccinated close contacts who are not required to present for PCR testing. And then it's going to ask them to test themselves more than once a day. And then if you test positive, you'll go and have a PCR test. Great. Now... I would struggle, legitimately struggle, to think of a more pointless way to do antigen testing in any country. There is not zero point to it because they're close contacts, they could have COVID, but it is ridiculous. The only thing it enables the government to do is to say that they have implemented antigen testing while actually in no way implementing it or allowing the public to use it. But now they can say, no, we reviewed it and we implemented it in cases where we thought it was appropriate, which is to say they have still effectively decided no one gets to use it, but this incredibly small subgroup of people. But Michal Martin said he was very eager, Michael, to get further adoption of this technology in this country. And this is what we've got. mm nothing like other countries, Michael, where we have seen testing before you enter certain facilities, for instance, or where testing is easily available over the counter. So if you're feeling unwell, you can test yourself. And then if it comes positive, you will set yourself up to get a PCR test. And you know, you'll take the day off work and gives people information that they can use to make informed decisions about their own healthcare, which obviously would be offensive to the current government and can't be done because... If there's one thing we've seen over the last two years is they do not like the idea of people making informed decisions. That's why none of their, none of what the government does ever has an explanation. Or if it does, it never has any evidence provided. There is simply, this has happened, we are doing this. And the nightclubs, I think, are a perfect example of it. Just some people might think that's an anomaly and doesn't make sense when compared to these other sectors. Now I'm going to stop talking, as if I had answered a question. So yes, we will, we will now have antigen testing. It will be wrong, Michael, if you and I, following the implementation of this program, say that we don't have antigen testing. And I think that's the value of this program to the government.
1: Yeah, their value as they say, well, we have it.
0: We have it. We, you know, we reviewed all of the available evidence. We stayed up to date with everything. And we implemented it where we thought most effective. And all it does, it stops people from saying, you spent a year pissing around And then you did nothing. And all of this thing of, oh, we can't do it because Neffit doesn't like it. Well, what about one particular member of Neffit, Philip Nolan, Michael. Do you remember Philip Nolan? Yeah. A week and a half ago? Two weeks ago? Yeah. Saying that Ireland was coming close to suppressing COVID-19. Yeah. And I remember hearing that at the time and I was like, that's total bullshit. That's just nonsense. I mean, I would like were it true, because I would like there to be no restrictions and for the government to fall in shambles, where it can you know, go back to being incompetent about things that are impactful but less immediate to me. And uh, he said it. And as soon as he said it, you're like, that's, you, you can't have evidence for that because that's nonsense. And then two weeks later, he has to come back and say, oh, well, things have gotten very bad. Why are we trusting these people's analysis? Or their predictions, they have been uniformly terrible. What kind of
1: testing regime are we running now, say, in hospitals and care homes, for people working in those?
0: It's hard to tell. In the same way it's hard to tell how many outbreaks of COVID-19 there have been amongst healthcare staff. Or the really interesting question is how many of the COVID cases in hospitals are not people so seriously ill that they were hospitalised with COVID-19, but are rather people who were found to have COVID in hospital, either having gone in for something else, but having had COVID or having picked it up in hospitals. And that's an intro. That I think is one of the two or three really interesting questions about the pandemic that we just do not have enough data to work out. And that is one of them. The other really interesting thing is if you look at OriP.ie and you look at the level of deaths this year. Now... Once it gets to, it's, it's been up a bit um, throughout 2021, but once it gets to July and starts to move into August, it is consistently above the average for 2017 to 2020. Now, some people are saying, well, it's the vaccines. They're killing people. Right. I have seen no evidence of that. That's all I can say on that issue. If anyone has evidence, I'm happy to review it, but I'm seeing a lot sure. of people say it without evidence to back it up in the same way I saw a lot of people today passing around a post on Twitter that was about the amount of people who had picked up COVID in hospitals versus the amount who'd had it when they came in and there were people like intelligent respectable people retweeting this yes and I'm not going to say the information on it was wrong what I'm going to say is there was no source on that image there was no way the people retweeting it could know it was correct and I'm just not comfortable with that and saying things when I don't know if I'm right. And you can't fact check that image because it didn't have the required information on it. It could ultimately be perfectly right. Yeah, we don't know. But you would think you would, if you saw something and it plays to your prejudices, but you've no way of confirming it, you would be extra careful with it because you're biased to go along with it. But the thing with RIP.ie, the debts are way up. What I would be interested to know is, is this a result of lockdowns? Are we seeing things like the results of missed cancer screenings, although actually cancer screenings in relation to certain cancers have a mixed reputation uh, in the research. Is it things like that? Is it results of lockdowns that we haven't been able to show? I don't think anyone has actually been able to work out what it is. There are going to be
1: all sorts of things that are going to have been missed because of lockdown. At, at one end, obviously, I think the most dramatic examples are cancer screenings, particularly for cancers that are of are, are, are a type that, well, all cancers benefit, I, I would suppose, from early diagnosis, but certain cancers far more so that early, early, in, early diagnosis and rapid treatment massively impact on the positive the the chances of a positive income outcome in those cases but say take someone like me uh i i at this stage i don't know the last time i had my bloods done so somebody if you got sort of fat people in their 50s and their 60s and they norm you'd normally expect so particularly if you're on certain kinds of medication you're going to check your liver function because the medication might affect it you want to make sure it's stable your cholesterol is okay that your lipids are okay your sugars are okay and you're talking here about hundreds of thousands of people who are not terribly unwell but they're not massively healthy either there surely are going to be some of those people that are that in other circumstances certain things would have been picked up on that aren't being picked up on and then you may be looking at um, early more uh, er, early and er, earlier deaths than you would otherwise have anticipated for people like those. And that's going to fall s- scattered through so many different categories, Gary. I would have thought it's going to be hard to sort of sift them out.
0: No, and, and something which is complicating this is that Ireland is not good for statistics generally. A lot of time I'll be doing stuff with the other gripped people and they will come to me to ask me, you know, is there a data source that says this or that You know, measures this? And I, usually the answer is no. We don't do that. We just don't measure things a lot of the time. And when we do measure it, we tend to be ass-backward to the greatest extent possible. Like, some of the stuff we do is, is legitimately embarrassing. And so we're left to use things like RIP.ie, which, for those who aren't aware, and I assume most people are, is an online website where you can put debt notices. And people have come forward and they've made the usual things of there are duplicates and there are all these issues. There could be fraudulent cases. There could be all of that. And they're right, there could be many of those things. The problem is, that's always been true. And so while any one incident on RIP.ie might be a duplicate, you can very easily compare the averages across different years. I've been listening to the debates in the Shannon and the Dahl the last while, and there's an increasing amount of talk about social media misinformation and things like that, Michael. Yeah, yeah. You know, these incredible problems and how do we solve them. And I think the general way you solve them is by being upfront about things and behaving honestly and trying to inform people. And I would very much like the government to explain what is happening here. And by failing to do that, they enable people to just pick whatever they want, whatever whatever appeals to them intuitively, and simply say, well, this is why it's done, or you know, this is happening, and the you know, vaccines are killing people, or whatever... Where if you just came out and said, listen, this is the data we have, it suggests this, at least you've said something. The government hasn't really done that throughout COVID. And after the mask thing, I think they were legitimately quite dishonest.
1: The problem when you leave that kind of space, we all, as you said before, we all have a, a natural tendency towards confirmation bias. We will seek out those particular facts, those data, which we think support our own particular pet theory or our belief and in in the vacuum, people will do that increasingly in when there is no apparent it's not that there is a counter narrative because God knows there is a very strong official narrative, but the nature of it and the way it has been managed since the beginning, the level of trust I wouldn't say with the majority I think most people actually have pretty high levels of trust with the stats coming out of the government and the HSE, and what's reported in the media. But there is a significant enough size of a minority which whose trust is being corroded.
0: I think part of the problem that they have here is that I think you're right that there is a general level of trust in, in the stats and in the statements. The problem is that the statements and the stats have been of such uniformly low quality that the more you look into it, the more you are deposed to look pearly upon them. And really, if anything, you want the opposite situation. Generally, it's good if the more people listen to you, the more they trust you. I mean, you don't always have to be right. You just need to be trustworthy. It's like I say occasionally on this show. We are obviously very biased, but we try and be fair. And you just need to give people a sense that you are trustworthy and you are trying And have a level of competency. And they just avoid things they don't want to talk about. And that just leaves the space to people who will say anything. On either side. I think that when they avoid these
1: issues. They may have decent motives for doing this. It may be out of a, a sincerely held concern. You know the old... Is it Strauss Leo Strauss's idea the noble lie that there are certain times that for the for the good of the community because you're dealing with certain high policies or complex issues that you can't tell the full truth or you have to tell half truths or half lies in order to keep people on board to keep going towards what is ultimately the correct objective. Now I'm not saying that in the, actually that they're lying, but but I think they're worried that if. And whether they're right or they're wrong is, but they're worried about certain kinds of advice or certain kinds of things. The classic ones we've talked about before, I say the antigen testing or the use of masks or, uh, certain kinds of social congregate, social encounters that while they may be not in a position to give a full and complete explanation of why this is a bad thing, they, have concerns concerns that they may not be able to actually articulate fully because to do so would create the wrong impression and therefore rather than just simply coming out and say listen this is these are these are our worries this is what we, we can't actually say for certain x or y but this is our concern and that's why we don't think this is a good idea there has been a, a I would say a refusal and maybe I'm being unfair but my sense is that since the beginning there has been a a, 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 a refusal to treat the population fully like adults in that that include them in a conversation which includes uncertainty. To recognise that that uncertainty exists. To recognise that we are in a new, a new and novel situation and that choices are going to be made. And sometimes sometimes we will make choices which will turn out to be the wrong ones. And we will have to say, OK, actually, we made the wrong choice now. We have more information. We have more data. We're now going to stop doing this and we're going to do that and we're going to change our policy. And, and I think that if you do that, maybe this is also my naive, but if you give people that sense of not being the subject of a policy, but rather the active agents cooperating with their government in in a, in a this battle. I mean, it's like a war. Yes, it's a cliche. But a pandemic is, a, is, in a sense, like a nation being at war. And the most successful situations of those is when people don't feel they're simply the passive receivers of a diktat from on high. But rather, they are active agents, taking part in their own way in their own defence, and that there are that there are we are genuinely in it together, rather than simply this is a cliche, which we hear repeated from podiums at, in government buildings. I don't think they have done that properly, and I think that that has led to an imbalance in the tone with uh, the management of the pandemic, which I think is also potentially going to have long-term effects on people as we come out of it, which are going to be negative.
0: The Irish government and media has been incredibly dismissive of Britain's response to COVID-19. I saw Donnelly out there the other day saying that our cases were so high because of our proximity to Britain, which, again, was provided without explanation. Just say it and then walk away. But there was one thing that Britain did that I'd be very interested to see if we would follow up on. They are currently talking about having a public inquiry on the government's COVID-19 response. And that's because there was a report put together by um, some of the committees inside the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. I think it was the the Health Committee and the Science and uh, Technology Committee. So cross-party committees looked at the government's handling of the pandemic and they castigated... The British government. They said it was horrendous. But we're not going to do something like that. I don't think we will anyway. One of the reasons I don't think we will is because no one wants to accept that there could be consequences for any of the actions we did. Like we were talking there about RIP and what could be leading to those excess debts. And I was talking about cancers. The reason I said that, particularly cancers, was because I read a paper last year and it was the impact of covid-19 on cancer deaths due to delays in diagnosis in england um i'll i'll dig it up and I'll put a link to it below now it could have been supplanted there could have been more modern findings that say actually there is no increased risk or it's different but that paper said that they estimated over the next 5 years as a res- due to the response to covid-19 in england which was lockdowns Somewhere between an 8 and 10% increase in the number of deaths due to breast cancers over the next five years. They did the same for lung cancer. I think they said that would go up by about 5%. They did Mm -hmm. the same for uh, two other types of cancer, which I I cannot remember off the top of my head. Uh, But they said there were going to be thousands of deaths due to the lockdown itself, due to the delays that introduced for treatment. I don't see the Irish government wanting to put together any sort of report that could come back and said, actually, yeah, you killed a ton of people. You may have saved a ton of people, but you also killed a ton of people.
1: There was an Irish oncologist who, who was making a comment on the, bay, on the back of the the similar data that was being used in the british record who he said that he 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 believed that it was perfectly possible over the next 5 to 10 years that the long term outcome of this would we would actually see an excess of mortality in cancer rates which would which would ultimately be similar to the number the total number of te- deaths from covid that took place during the pandemic now if that was to be the case or anything like that would be the case then obviously you're going to have to ask questions about the way that we handled it and how we did it. The most obvious questions that will be asked, and it's not just in Ireland, it's in Britain, it's in Sweden, it's in the United States, it's the way that people responded, particularly within the care homes and in hospitals, and the way that vulnerable people and elderly people were treated early on and the, the early uh large numbers of people who died and that the mistakes that were made there and why those particular mistakes were made and why they were made in the particular way that they happened. Uh, I think there are going to be questions, very serious questions there. And I think that it would be shameful if if we didn't have some kind of investigation into that. And it's not just good enough to say, oh, well, we didn't know and it was new. I mean, there were people who at the time making very clear statements while those mistakes were being made, that they felt that these were mis- that these were mistakes, and articulating why they felt they were mistakes and what could be done instead of following the, these policies,
0: if anything like that is done, it'll be a whitewash. Just then, it is not within the cultural remit of the Irish government or the higher the, the civil service to produce a report which would be able to say you are responsible for X and Y. X might be good, but why was this. They're not going to do it because that means blame. And we're not good at blame.
1: It is also true that in the United Kingdom, in Westminster, House committees tend to have more teeth, command more respect, uh, be more aggressive in their approach, than doll committees are at the closest we've got to that kind of the kind of thing that you see in Westminster or in the United states in in the, you know obviously at a much bigger level of the House or Senate committees is when McGuinness was the chair of the the finance committee wasn't it was the finance mm-hmm. committee yeah, he turned it into something a little bit more like what you see in Westminster. We don't have that cultural history here. I would like to think that it was possible that some that uh, some reasonably independent-minded TD chairing a committee would be in a position to drive that. However, I suppose one of the questions is, when you look back on it, there's probably going to be a degree of unanimity that was in the doll regarding a lot of these actions that isn't going to be conducive to some kind of a hostile investigation, supported by the fact that there is a much, much more diverse me, media ecology in the United Kingdom than there is here. I, the, you say there was a, a widespread agreement across the parties. I think that was true. I mean, the only degree which there maybe there was at times disagreement about policy was that sometimes you had some of the opposition parties were pressing for not less but more of this, more lockdown, harder lockdown, better lockdown. You had the odd. Exception in the same in the rural independence, but generally speaking, yeah, there was widespread agreement, but that was mirrored, Gary, within the media, within the print media, the, the radio, the TV. There weren't very many voices in Irish media which were questioning the, the shape or the direction of policy. And if you don't have that, it's very hard for a politician who wants maybe to kick up a fuss, maybe wants to cause a problem for the the comfortable to do so. Because the chances are he's going to be portrayed as, you know, maybe someone up for himself or a bit of a crank or somebody who has his own agenda. I, I know we always tend to go back to it, but it is a big problem here. There is this a lack of a diversity in our media ecology in comparison just in newspapers where you have the Financial Times, the Times, the Telegraph, the Independent, The Guardian I mean, there you have a a real spread ideologically across there. You have the BBC, the Channel 4, and now you have the new GB News, which is doing its own thing. You've got Sky. You've got magazines like The Spectator. There is real diversity there, and then there's a diversity of intellectual opinions and traditions. You have real, heavyweight-funded research uh, think tanks, Doing independent work, which we don't have here.
0: Anyway, we will be back on Friday. I am told I will receive internet um, sometime this week or next week. It's an Irish telecommunications company. We'll see how that goes. I may even at some point receive a computer so that I don't have to sit with a phone on a computer desk trying to record this very precariously balanced on a chair. (laughs)
1: you <laughs> are you're a hero for the nation, but hopefully all that will come to pass, and if it doesn't, we'll be back on Friday anyway.
0: All the best.